You say that I am a king. John 18, verse 37. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This moment in the life of Jesus, as recorded in John chapter 18, is kind of outrageous. There's this sort of farcical quality to it when we read it, knowing what we know to be really true about Jesus. Here is the judge of the universe being interrogated. Imagine, just for a second, if, even, if in a human court, a human judge were to step down from his seat and allow the convicted to be interrogating him. Right? It would, like it's the undoing of order, and here it is at a cosmic scale. This is the reversal that takes place when the humility of Christ encounters the pride of Pontius Pilate. And I think as I was reflecting on the gospel for today, what we see in this um, strange interrogation, Jesus being interrogated, actually has an emblem of how Christ continues to interact with us and with the world. And I think there's much we can learn and several things we can avoid by studying this passage. So to start with, um, we see a picture of how the world, and by that I mean non-Christians, how the, how the world continues to interact with Jesus, hearing the claim from other people that Jesus is king, but not believing it themselves, dismissing it, as not concerning themselves, like Pontius Pilate's sort of rough dismissal. Am I a Jew? Does this occupy me? Right? As if Christ's claim is somehow over there and can be put on a shelf. And Pilate was chiefly unwilling to accept it for lack of its visible evidence. And that's why Jesus explains, no, 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 this isn't an ordinary kingdom. It has this invisible quality. His kingdom is not of this world. So much for um, non-Christians. But there's also this sort of um, ambiguous middle ground, isn't there, between folks who claim that Jesus is Lord with their lips, like they'll say the phrase... But I think Jesus' question back to Pilate lands for many. Do you say this of your own accord, which would be great? Or are you just saying this because other people said it about me? There's a challenge to sort of nominal belief, even as we find it in our own hearts. Do you say this of your own accord, or is it just because other people said it? I actually think, you know, so much of um, seeing Jesus' character in the Gospels depends on trying to rightly hear the tone of voice in which Jesus says some of these things, I really think there's sort of, I hear a tenderness in Jesus' um, comeback to Pilate. Do you say this of your own accord? Like, he's not sort of like, are you saying this on your, like, someone just told you that. He's saying, are you saying it of your own accord? It's even clearer in Greek, the way you frame a question is the same as if you're making the statement. So you just says, you are a king. Right? You know, like, I, some other language does this, where, you know, you are a king, yes, you know. So he's saying, you are a king. And Jesus is saying, just shave the question mark off of there, right? Come on, confess it. Don't just say the words. Con- make it your confession of your own will. An invitation he still gives to us. And in this exchange between Jesus and Pilate, we also have a warning to the church. When Christ says, if my kingdom were of this world, which it's not, that's what he makes really plain. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Right? They would have been like the, the zealots, that group of the Jews in the era of Jesus who would take up the swords and fight back to defend 
what they thought were to defend God's principles. Jesus is actually saying that unlike the zealots of the day who were praised, people liked the zealots. They were like, oh, those guys are, they are really hardcore about God's commands. But Jesus is saying that Christians shouldn't be like the Jewish zealots who tried to defend the things of God with an earthly sword. Muslims make jihad because they don't worship the one true God. The one true God says, don't take up the sword to defend him. In fact, the principle is even stronger the other way. Christians, don't, not only do we not take up the sword to defend the things of God, we actually receive the sword, right? The thousands, as we sung in the hymn, as we, the processional hymn, the many, many Christians who shed their own blood, who just let the sword pierce them in their effort to proclaim Christ's rule. I think in a similar and metaphorical manner, we need to be exceedingly cautious in ever engaging in a culture war. Not only just literally war, don't take up swords, but to be careful about any so-called culture war. To be clear, I think if through the legitimate channels of voting and donating and doing the things that we do to participate in the common good, and you can make things better in the world, great, right? I'm not saying retreat from the world entirely. But it just should never be turned into a metaphorical war, an offensive, all-consuming mission. The kingdom we are a part of is not of this world. And part of the problem with a war mentality is it always slides into this sort of black and white, us and them, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. Which then undoes the very gospel we claim to be teaching, which is that we're all the bad guys. We're all the bad guys. You're the bad guys. I'm the bad guy. That guy out there, he's the bad guy. That's the gospel. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Christians can't adopt this sort of wholesale us versus their mentality because we are all them. Even after being born again by water and the Holy Spirit, this badness remains. The guilt has been taken away, thanks be to Jesus. But this this impulse to do the wrong thing, right, until we're dead in the ground and raised again, that's going to be there. And we're fighting it. That's part of the Christian struggle. Lastly, um, I think also in Pontius Pilate, we see a figure for ourselves as Christians um, when we don't like Jesus' kingship. When there's some directive that he's given as king, because he's rightfully king, any directive he gives, the old title for this feast was Christ the King of the Universe, which I love. But when Christ presents his kingship to us, and as king says, this is what I command you to, to, to do, isn't, I find in myself the impulse to be like Pilate. Are you really a king? Right? We want to try and dodge. And then Pilate even goes one step further and tries to find fault with Jesus. What have you done? And I think there's this sort of figure of that fleshly part that still lives in each of us that wants to try and get out of the commands that Jesus has given because it affects our lives. It costs us something to seek to follow. We missed out on something we wanted. But if we believe that he is truly good, Obedience will be a blessing, even when it's painful. But like Pilate, we don't want to submit, because if Pilate admits that Jesus is the king, Pilate himself has to submit. The claim is a total one. And I think in the same way, when we... Um, you know, this, all this imagery of being like a child that Jesus commends in the Gospels. 
the opposite of that, which we're tempted to do in our flesh, when we sort of push away from Jesus' claim to have authority over our lives, what we're actually doing is we're sitting in the judge's seat. We're saying, oh, I can judge what you have said and what, what I will apply and what I won't, rather than let him, letting him be the judge and ruling definitively. Which is, of course, um, a fool's game because on the last day, and the theme of these couple weeks in the liturgical year is the second coming of Christ. When Christ comes again to judge all things. I, that, I don't know if it stuck out for you. I thought the, um, the reading was read so well uh, this morning from Daniel. It says, and the, oh, actually, I want to find it again because it, so, it was so good. Here we go. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. It's this sort of haunting figure, right? The books, the record of every thought, of every day, of every soul who ever lived. And the books will be opened. Christ is the judge. We are not the judge. He is the ruler of all kings. That was the title given to him in the Revelation reading that we heard. The ruler of all kings. And yet, even this is actually an insufficient title to describe him. And I love, Jesus is always being presented with things and then like plunging the truth even further than, what, than the situation presented. Pilate's like, are you a king? Are you a king? And Jesus is like, the reason I came into the world, where there's already this sort of hint of his pre-existence before his human life, you know, as eternally the son of God, it's not just a rule with authority, although that's a part of it. This human picture is just a small glimpse. He came to bear witness to the truth. He's trying to blow Pilate's conceptions out of the water. This sort of tussle of who's got the power. It's like, I didn't, I'm not just the king. I came to bear witness to the truth in this sort of um, architectonic, like, deep sense, the truth, which is being revealed for the first time in human history, in his own life and ministry, that God's eternal will was to reconcile us to himself forever. That's the truth. The gospel truth is what he bears witness to. And what he bears witness to, how he bears witness to it, is with his own death. The word witness there is the word martyr, which prior to Christianity just meant legal witness. But then when so many Christians were shedding their blood under Roman persecution, for the truth, it, it took on this overtone of not just bearing witness to the truth, but dying for the truth. Christ is actually the first martyr in that sense, giving his life to proclaim the gospel of God's love. He didn't come as king to rule. He came as king to die. This sort of maximal extension of what he said the night before. He was standing before Pilate when he was with his friends. And he said, the son of man came not to be served as a king would serve, but to serve. He bore witness with his own blood, which he shed when he was scourged, which he shed when he was nailed to a cross. Christ is, in fact, the king. But the great reversal of the gospel is that the throne he chose, whereas every other king would take up literal swords to try and get the most glorious throne, he chose a cross for his throne. And for a crown, right? The symbolism that is not accidental. A crown of thorns. They could have just pushed thorns on his head. Why in God's providence did they make a crown of thorns? The very symbol Jesus willingly in his sovereign ordination of all these things received as his chosen crown, the king who suffers. And every king, when he conquers, 
um, an, an empire would receive a chosen prize, right? The sort of the bounty of the empire that, that will reside in the king's palace. And what did Christ choose for his prize? A ragged, often stumbling, often pitiful bunch of sinners that he loves. We are his prize as king. Amen.